Hello, everyone. Welcome back to SALT Talks. My name is Joe Aletto, and I'm the production manager of SALT, which is a global thought leadership forum and networking platform encompassing finance, technology, and geopolitics. SALT Talks is a series of digital interviews with the world's foremost investors, creators, and thinkers. And just as we do at our global SALT conferences, we aim to both empower big, important ideas and provide our audience a window into the minds of subject matter experts. And we are thrilled to kick off our new Voice of Cannabis series today, brought to the SALT platform in partnership with strategic marketing firm, Fourth Wall Advisory, leading international cannabis company, Canopy Growth Corporation, and issuer to MJ, the world's largest cannabis ETF, ETFMG. Hosting today's panel is ETFMG's MJ research and banking expert, Jason Wilson. With over 15 years of experience in the asset management, finance, and structured product space, Jason has a track record of bringing hard-to-access client classes to market. Jason has held leadership at senior and senior positions at several leading financial institutions. Most recently, Jason was Senior Vice President at Infor Financial Inc. Infor is a leading boutique investment bank based in Toronto, Canada, that has worked in connection with a number of companies in the legal cannabis industry, including acting as an advisor to Canopy Growth Corporation in connection with entering into its strategic relationship with Constellation Brands. Jason has also worked at investment banking divisions of the Societe Generale, France's third largest bank, and at CIBC, one of the five largest banks in Canada. While at Societe Generale and CIBC, Jason provided asset managers and financial institutions with various capital raising financing, and risk mitigation solutions and strategies. Jason has an LLB from the University of Western Ontario. Prior to completing his university studies, Jason was a member of the Canadian Forces and is a recipient of the Gulf of Kuwait Medal awarded for his engagement in direct combat during the Gulf War in 1991. If you have any questions during today's talk, please enter them in the Q&A box at the bottom of your video screen. And now we'll turn it over to Jason to conduct today's SALT talk. Great. Thanks, Joe. And, and thanks very much for, for the intro. Very much appreciated. Everyone, pleasure to have you all here. Obviously, this is our first episode of the Voice of Cannabis series. And today we're going to specifically talk about the CBD market. Um, pleasure to have two expert panelists with us. Uh, on the business side, we have Kelly Fair, who is, uh, Kelly is from Canopy Growth Corporation. And, you know, to understate and to say that she's, you know, really deep in the weeds, no pun intended, uh, in, in the cannabis, U.S. cannabis space. Uh, she acts uh, currently as a U.S. general counsel, and she's also been uh, officer of the California court since 2004. So she brings a lot of uh, business acumen and uh, legal experience to the cannabis space with us. Um, also joining us on from the regulatory side is uh, Axel Burnaby. And Axel is assistant counsel to New York State Governor Andrew Cuomo. So in that role, he's got a, a number of things going on pertaining to health, but specific to today's conversation, uh, at Axel oversees all of the hemp, medical, and adult use uh, cannabis framework in the state of New York. So thank you both for, for joining us today. To, um, I guess kind of to, to kick things off, start kind of at a higher level and, and, and talk about the, maybe Kelly will start, start with you and talk about the uh, federal landscape. If we think about, you know, it's been almost two years since the Agriculture Improvement Act was passed, which removed hemp from the Controlled Substances Act, 
initially, I think there's a lot of euphoria in the industry thinking, you know, this is it, it's green light go on everything. Um, any kind of CBD or sorry, hemp related product, including CBD based edibles and drinkables is, was open for business. Uh, and, and the contrary seems to be somewhat true. I mean, obviously we have federal legalization, um, but, but there's a lot of ambiguity from the FDA and the DA and what have you. So, you know, can you kind of speak to the FDA framework and where it stands with CBD based or hemp based products in the United States right now? Sure, Jason. So you're right. When the Farm Bill passed in December of 2018, um, there was a lot of euphoria getting just the, the legalization of the commodity and the, the derivatives of the commodity. Um, you know, and the Farm Bill did give jurisdiction to the USDA and the FDA to then regulate. I think the USDA came out out of the gate um, with guidance just to make it clear that hemp and the derivatives are both legal and interstate commerce couldn't be interfered. Um, and so the farmers were really excited about getting that commodity as part of their portfolio. The FDA came out um, in a different posture about May of 2019 and it updated its website and did a public statement saying that um, because CBD had been investigated as a new drug in relation to the approval of the Epidiolex pharmaceutical, it would not recognize diet, uh, CBD and dietary ingredients and conventional food additives at that time. And then at the in the same breath said, but we're evaluating um, systemic impacts on human consumption at these levels and just really signaling to the industry that it's not intending to close the swim lanes for dietary supplements and foods. So it was kind of a double edged, not real sure what's going to happen. Um, since then, it's uh, no secret that the FDA has not yet regulated um, the CBD and dietary supplements and foods. It is open for public comment. It has partnered with stakeholders like Canopy Growth to evaluate a whole host of concerns it has around toxicity, um, liver reproductive toxicity, and just really stating it needs to understand the impacts of humans consuming much lower doses of hemp-derived CBD. Um, we have been in partnership with the FDA. I believe that the evidence that they have, the science that they have is sufficient to prove out the safety profile of this substance. Um, it's no, we've made it no secret that we disagree with their position on IND preclusion, um, but have answered their call for data. And we've asked our other stakeholders to also be forthcoming with data. Um, currently pending is the FDA has issued enforcement discretion guidance that's sitting with OMB now. We have not seen what the guidance says, um, but stakeholders, including Canopy, testified at OMB about what it should say. And we're continuing to have discussions with FDA and just put a new study in the docket two weeks ago. Um, are planning on putting a third study in the docket um, and a couple of weeks once it's published. So that's uh, broad brushstrokes where the FDA is. I, I will say um, with the incoming uh, new commissioner Han, his first public statement was very, um, was gave some optimism to the industry. I think it's a direct quote. He said, it would be a fool's errand to try to stand in the way of um, hemp derived CBD and products at this point. And it doesn't seem to be the FDA's intention to do so. Um, but then again, it just wants to do so in a way that protects public safety. No, and, that, and that makes sense, but it, it's obviously just adding this, this level of ambiguity that's kind of hard to, to uh, you know, manage around. 
Is there any movement on Capitol Hill to try to, you know, force the FDA along or anything happening there at all? Yes. And, you know, you make the great point that it does add ambiguity and it hurts all the way up and down the supply chain. So those farmers that I discussed at the beginning that did make the investment into the hemp crop initially, Canopy being one of them, we had, we were growing hemp over seven states in that first growing season. Um, they are not seeing the benefit of that investment because the products cannot be sold without that ambiguity. And the margins on high yielding hemp crops versus uh, fibrous crops for industrial application um, is, is quite significant. And so those farming constituents have gotten the attention of Congress and we're seeing congressional leadership on the issue from both sides of the aisle in states that have um, strong farming constituents, including Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell representing Kentucky. He's been a huge advocate of hemp and hemp-derived CBD. Um, there's been consistent pressure from the Hill to on the FDA to either regulate or I have a legislative fix to just amend the Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act. That's the most recent activity we've seen. Um, we saw it coming in a bill form from the chair of the House Agricultural Committee, Colin Peterson, last year, um, proposing to amend the FDCA. And we understand that um, Majority Leader McConnell is also considering some language. I wouldn't be surprised if there's some pressure around the appropriations process um, that happened last year. Uh, more of a, a carrot scenario where the FDA could get $2 million in funding if they were to regulate or say anything. Um, they felt a bit short of regulating and I don't know if they said much and what they gave to Congress this summer, but so I, I'm expecting a lot more activity on the issue, yes. So, so Axel, maybe you can pipe in a little bit, I, I, obviously you're at the state level, but you know, the thing that strikes me as a, as a little bit in, interesting is the DEA's recent interim ruling. And, you know, in, in some ways it, it just seems clumsy. Uh, others are suggesting that, you know, there's, there's more to it, that they're trying to run a little bit of interference. Can you speak a little bit about that interim rule and what that means to the industry? Yeah, I'm, I'm happy to talk about that. Um, I just just to, to frame the issue, because I think Kelly did a really great job of explaining some of the complexities for regulators. So the states have been picking up a lot of the absence of regulation at a federal level and implementing that at a state level. So, so we've had to step in in the form of uh, regulating dietary supplements or food and beverages in a way that normally would really be left to the, to the, to the USDA and the FDA. Uh, and so I think it's important to understand that uh, that playing field, because that's the only way you can really appreciate the, the difficulty that the DEA and the FDA are having in determining whose jurisdiction uh, starts where and where, uh, where it ends. But, it, you know, in addition to the complexities that, that, that Kelly mentioned on food, and, um, on food and dietary supplements specifically, what we also see with cannabis sativa or cannabinoids that, you know, cannabinoid hemp products that are, that are uh, derived from hemp, legally hemp plants and, you know, have low THC is, is the sale of flour, which is akin to a sort of tobacco product uh, and vapes, which are uh, also traditionally regulated by the FDA, but haven't been because of the complexity of regulating vape devices. So again, if you see the full spectrum of products that you're dealing with that are that are uh, downstream from from cannabis sativa, 
you really understand the complexity of the regulatory environment. Uh, so we're, we're, we're focused on trying to uh, promote consumer protection in that space and pick up where the USDA uh, and the FDA aren't really actively regulating. Uh, and that's a big challenge for the states because we're not accustomed to doing that. But I, I could talk more about that. But going back to your specific DA question, so understanding that dynamic, the Farm Bill kicked jurisdiction over hemp to the USDA and the FDA, clearly. And, and that was supposed to be broken up with USDA taking care of growing. And once it was harvested and once you started to convert those products into dietary supplements or any other kind of extract, that was supposed to be the purview of the FDA. But you still have this question of what happens to THC that's derived from a legally compliant hemp plant. There is always THC on a, on a CO2 extract or on an ethanol extract. You're always going to have slightly hot product that's coming out from your extract. And so, so really, uh, that is an issue that you know, we're struggling with, and I can tell you what the state of New York is doing, but that's something that the FDA will need to struggle with. And, and the Farm Bill clearly kicked that to the FDA. What the, what the DEA did with its regulations, which I agree with you, Jason, are, was a little bit, uh, I'm trying to pick my words carefully, but, uh, you know, it was a little surprising, um, was, was, was twofold. First, it said that the intent of its regulation was really just to make conforming changes. The Farm Bill changed the definition of hemp and excluded it from the Controlled Substances Act. Well, it was going to change its regulations to make sure that that was reflected in its regulations. And it changed a couple of things on the export and, uh, of epidiolects and so forth. But, but really, it stated that its intent was not to really change the law. And yet, in the preamble or in the introductory part of the statement, it said that intermediary products, so these extracts that come out of your extract facilities, that are hot, that run above 0.3% THC, are going to be considered Schedule One THC substances. And that's, that's really problematic for pretty much anybody who's making any food, well, extract uh, that that's going to be added to food or any dietary supplement because almost any form of extraction is going to result in a, in a slightly hot intermediary product. So, so it was, it, it was problematic because one, I don't think that they had the right ju jurisdiction to actually make that statement and regulate that definition that was really kicked to the FDA. And two, the way they did it, they didn't actually step into the breach and say, all right, let's regulate intermediary products. They said, we're not actually doing anything controversial, but by the way, in passing, here's what we consider uh, to be legal for intermediary products. So it sent everybody into a tailspin. Uh, and I just don't think it was, it was, it was very sort of uh, sophisticated or, or good regulatory practice, to be honest with you. Well, and, and, and Kelly, maybe you can speak a little bit to, to the intermediary concept. If we look at the alcohol industry and obviously Constellation being an investor in Canopy, I, clearly there's a different framework there. There is, and it's it's because it's regulated. If if anyone were to, if the FDA were to step in and actually regulate or any regulatory body and regulate intermediary product, we could see something very analogous to beverage alcohol. If you look at how bourbon is manufactured, it can only bourbon can only be a, a above or under a certain proof, but in the manufacturing process, um, the liquid is well above that proof before it gets diluted with water. And that intermediary product moves from facility to facility, um, bonded facilities as per regulation, so it's controlled, and that you know that that intermediary product is not going to commercial sale. And that's the key. And without those re that regulatory framework, um, it creates this ambiguity and it creates, and really for no reason, because the intermediary product that Axel is desc describing 
is not for commercial sale. It is to go and then be, you know, further processed into isolate or further processed to delete or dilute the THC so that you can have a product that you can bring to market outside of the dispensary network. So adding that regulatory framework is going to be really vital to clean it up. And the DEA doesn't have the, the resources, I wouldn't think, or the shouldn't have the desire to enforce against what they've just done to be looking for intermediary product moving to be testing it to see if like an extract is hot or a distillate or an isolate. Um, it just seems like they're, they're biting off more than they want there. And, and actually, just if, if I can, Jason, just to follow up on that thought. So um, that's Kelly, what we've heard uh, through a couple of different channels you know, the DEA isn't interested in getting in this space. They're, they understand that right now they would have to enforce against pretty much every processor in the country. They're not going to do that, which is all the more reason why, well, why put that language in there? I think they were trying to plant a, a flag and say, look, we still have to deal with this issue. Um, so in New York, actually, we considered this issue even prior to the USD, uh, the DEA issuing its regulations. And what we're thinking of doing in our regulations, which should be coming out soon, is allowing processors to uh, possess up to 3% THC product in its intermediary form. And that's usually a distillate or crude oil. And so that would provide them with a legal protection to have that just in the same way that Kelly, you were describing uh, would be happening on, on, on alcohol front. So, so there are ways around it, but what, what's really fascinating is that if the FDA goes the way of uh, enforcement discretion, which I, you know, it looks like they may go and because it would be a fool's errand to put this genie back in the bottle, you're going to have a piecemeal, state-by-state uh, state approach to, to all these issues, right? Including the important issue of THC. So, you know, while I think I understand the, I, I, I truly empathize with the FDA's sort of deer in headlights stands here because there is so much coming at them on the cannabinoid front. You know, like I said, vapes and dietary supplements and foods and THC, and, and they're just not accustomed to this. You know, the idea of not regulating it just makes things more complicated down the road. So we're trying to work with other states. We're coordinating with Florida. You know, it's unfortunate that California didn't get its bill passed at, at the last minute there. But but that's you know you you have to step into that breach. If not, you just you just you leave the market ripe for for uh, you know diversion and untoward uh, conduct. So federal framework, you know, it's working through some issues. But you know, at the end of the day state by state this any, any hemp related product has to be approved as well so and, and you know Axel I mean obviously like you I mean you're right in the center of it I mean you're you're there you're responsible for 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 you know basically you're overseeing all this regulatory framework in, in New York State but how have you can you kind of describe your framework how it works from you know edibles to drinkables to you know you name it is how's it work in New York is it different from other states what's give us a kind of run through yeah, I'll keep it really high level because obviously we could, you know, do an entire panel on that. But it, 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 I want to keep it interesting for a sort of industry and not to get too wonky on this. But it really does. It really is. A, it was a, a very interesting process because we had to think through, of course, you have your basic licensing and your basic, even the testing is borrowed heavily from the adult use or, you know, markets where you're testing for contaminants and you're testing for pesticides and whatnot. So, so that, that's fairly, that was fairly simple. What was more complicated was deciding, okay, if we're going to allow food and be sensible about it, do we put some kind of cap on the daily amount or on the serving amount that you're preserving that you're going to allow CBD or other cannabinoids? 
And, and so there, there isn't a lot of guidance there. The UK has put out a 60 milligram, you know, uh, day, daily dose limit uh, proposal. Uh, Australia has 70, I think. So, we're, you know, one of the things we're thinking of doing is, uh, and we're, we're going to get comments on these. So, you know, so they're not going to, they're going to be put out for comment and then we'll get, we'll get, we'll get to tweak them. But we're thinking of putting a 25 milligram per serving uh, limit on CBD food products. So if you're doing a seltzer, a CBD seltzer, you know, you, you're not going to dose it up with a, a couple hundred milligrams. We're going to try to keep it uh, proportional to, to the product. So, so stuff like that, we're, we're, you know, we're taking some steps into regulating vapes by, by limiting some of the excipients you can use, by uh, doing some protective measures around uh, the heating elements on some of your, uh, on some of your vape hardware. Uh, so that, that's also new for us. We're creating effectively a mini FDA. We're running a lot of this through our medical marijuana program because they have experience in that. But, but at, at, you know, at, its, at its core, it's a consumer protection statute that builds on the federal rules. So we really cite to the, the federal dietary supplement and the federal uh, food rules and say, you have to build your product uh, compliant with those standards so that hopefully when the FDA does this, to Kelly's point, right, once, once they really start to understand that there is no IND preclusion, that this isn't a drug, uh, then they'll implement their, their dietary supplement protocols and they can just fill in that and we can, we can stand back a little bit and step back. But as far as, you know, relative to other states, I think New York is going a little further because of the things I'm saying, you know, uh, dosage on, on food, vapes, uh, and, and, you know, uh, in, in that regard, I think we're a little bit more aggressive. Florida has a really good program up and running. Oregon is fairly sophisticated, so is Colorado. So a number of states have gone forward and we're working with them. We have a round table where we meet uh, regularly to discuss the issues, but some other states are, are a lot more reluctant. They're more conservative. They don't know how to deal with the THC issue. They don't know if they want pre-rolls or smokables. Is this a new, you know, cigarette-like product? So a lot of regulatory issues, but, but we're being fairly bullish on the industry. We think it's, it, uh, it's, it's a promising industry if it's regulated uh, properly. You know, that's, that's the premise. So Kelly, you're in California. I mean, you've, you've been there for a long time. What, what's happening over there? I mean, it's an important economy, obviously, one of the largest in the world. What's, what's the status? I know we have Bill 228. You give us a, an update? Yeah. Um, so I just want to echo something that, that Axel said, that New York is, it is bullish and it has been pro the most progressive and has made my job as an advocate for regulation easy from the beginning because I've been able to stay, state, state to the FDA, look at New York, look at how New York's, even the initial regulations are tying to the FDCA see how it's keyed together. You have the right regulations in place to regulate these products. You just need to turn it on. Um, and so I just want to give a hat tip to the state of New York as one that is progressive, because I think ultimately you regulate, then you protect your public. If you don't regulate, you're not protecting your public from diversion and bad actors. So I'll just start there and then move to my great state. Um, on, on hemp, just very similar to the, at the federal level, the California's um, Department of Agriculture has come out strong with regulations, allowed its, its farmers to get off and running, um, even from the state level all the way to the county level. The testing went off without a hitch. Uh, that first growing season, we were a part of it. Um, and the Department of Health, on the other hand, much like the FDA, has added, um, more than a fair amount of ambiguity and just a cooling to what actually can happen in California. The Department of Health has issued a, a, an FAQ response saying that it, it 
until the FDA regulates, um, it does not allow hemp-derived CBD in any human ingestible or animal um, food products. So the FAQ response is very vaguely written. It leaves open the issue of smokables. It leaves open the issue of manufacturing without sale in California. Um, and so 228, AB 228, um, was to clean that up and to say specifically that inclusion of hemp-derived hemp derivatives to dietary supplements or food would not adulterate the product um, and allow the products to enter the market and open the possibility for actual regulation. This is the second um, legislative uh, session where the bill has not passed um, for a, a host of reasons. This last round was due to um, maybe some late industry input and then uh, just a very unfortunate um, round of technicalities as far as how the session ended just generally um, with the senators having to be quarantined and remote voting and there, it was just you couldn't have you couldn't have made it up <laughs> truly uh, at the end but we along the way have been working with the governor's staff and office and have had very productive movement on the issue to make sure that the bill is drafted correctly, that the regulations roll out appropriately. Um, this is on the governor's radar as something that he thinks California wants and needs, and he's been um, nothing but supportive of um, companies like Canopy and, and their investments in California. So uh, we remain optimistic uh, for the future of AB228 and just uh, regulation generally. Well, and I have to believe the will, like, as you said, the will is there. It, it, there's a lot of technical, a lot of difficulties right now. And I would think a lot of the, one of the industries poised for growth post COVID is going to be the, the cannabis industry in general, just because of the job growth, the opportunities. So, you know, it's obviously hard to get a lot of alignment, but, you know, it, it must be incredibly difficult. I think of Canopy Growth, that is the largest cannabis, global cannabis company, uh, operating over a dozen countries globally. You're trying to to build this platform across 50 states. Like, how do you? Your 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 you and your team must be ridiculously off the hook, busy trying to to get your handles on this. How 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 are you coping? How are you managing? How I know you just launched your shop canopy.com website. How do you manage all this? Yeah. So what we've done um, as a regulatory platform, and that I am responsible for that, is just to look at states like New York look at how they're regulating, look at how all 50 states are regulating and create basically, you know, omnibus policies for every point along the supply chain for how we grow, how we extract, how we produce. We produce at GMP standards. We um, label at, in accordance with the FDCA and all of the states in which we sell. And, um, trying to go to the highest common denominator for regulatory standards so that we are then selling a product that consumers can trust and that are going to be compliant with the, F the federal FDCA at the end of the day and any state that's got more stringent regulations so we don't have to pivot um, the opposite way. We have so much at stake with our reputation and our relationship with our consumers to make sure that our products like BioSteel, Martha Stewart's products are coming to market first and free. Um, this works. We want all of those products just to be best in class no matter what and for the consumers to trust them. 
And I've said again and again, I think we've got regulations on the books that will ensure that is the case. And so um, our official position is just to manufacture and sell at those high standards. So I, I find cannabis fascinating. This is, it's, it's a drug, as we know, with Epidiolex, as, as we spoke to. Uh, it, it's potential for a wellness product. It, 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 this, there's all these different layers it, it touches. What, how are you working on the science side? I know in Canada, a lot of it is educating physicians or you know, to, to make sure that they better understand how to use this. What, what, is, what is Canopy doing on the science side? What are you seeing out there to, to help get, you know, get motion behind the whole cannabis industry? What we're doing um, is very focused on what the FDA is asking. Um, I presented to the FDA last October and started the conversation by saying, I'm not here to tell you our legal position. I'm not here to tell you how much pressure you're under by Congress. I am here and I've brought a team of scientists to talk about the questions that you're asking again and again. And so our, that those are all around um, toxicity, just generally liver toxicity, reproductive toxicity, um, and then longevity came up in that conversation. And so basically our science um, mandate has been to give the FDA what they need. So we've got grass studies ongoing that are looking at liver toxicity and reproductive toxicity. We've given the FDA interim data as it comes out so that we're feeding them real time. Um, we've done a study around cosmetics and whether the uh, CBD in cosmetics breaks the blood barrier, whether that should be part of the FDA's analysis on systemic impacts. It should not is the answer and that just got put in the public docket. And in October, um, one of the leaders on the CBD working group asked if we'd done a longevity study, but we hadn't and we hatched a plan to do one in the, you know, the car ride back to DC and it's just finished and we'll be giving that to the FDA shortly. So uh, to answer your question, what are we doing? We're doing whatever the FDA ask, is asking. And I, I, I implore all of the rest of the hemp stakeholders to do the same. So, so a lot of collaboration and, and, you know, Axel, you must be getting a lot of this, like, you know, sitting there on, on your side of the fence, how do you, you know, how do you look at this space? I mean, there's obviously, there's, there's a lot of product in the gray market, in the illicit market, if you will, um, that's being sold maybe without approval. Obviously you wanna work with companies like Canopy Growth to, to, to get the proper products. Like, what are you looking at to help manage that process? So that's a really good question. So, you know, I always come back to this and I think it's important for industry to understand how the regulators are viewing the market, right? We're struggling with a lot of these questions and the frameworks we have we apply and the rules we make and what we rely on to make those rules. And if, if as industry, you don't understand that, then, then you may be jeopardizing your entire business because you're just going to, you're, you're just, you're just going to run afoul of, of, of what the regulars are looking to do. So I think Kelly nailed it when she said that she appeared in front of the FDA and started answering their questions, because that's obviously how they're focused about it. But going back to your kind of writ large question, what's fascinating is, there are examples of drugs that are both prescription drugs and over-the-counter drugs and health and wellness. And that's a question of dosage. And we have to find, you know, where to, where to set that dial. Less common is a notion that you would have a, um, a potentially pharmaceutical product, an over-the-counter product, a dietary supplement product, and that it's a compound that's used recreationally. So it's the fact that it crosses so many 
spaces that makes it really difficult to regulate. So I'll give you just one example. As we're, as we're contemplating rolling out adult use in New York, we have to figure out what to do with our medical program. And when we say medical program, it's also uh, almost, a, it, it's not a misnomer, but it's a hybrid. It's not an FDA, you know, clinical science, uh, randomized trial driven program. It's a program that's, that's, that's dictated by some science, by anecdotal evidence, but by clear you know, history of use of cannabis for medicinal purposes. And so there's even an interaction there. What happens to the medical program? Where do you set the tax rates? What kind of products do you allow in what program, one program and not in the other? So even with CBD, that's why I think you have to understand the DEA being so sort of having such a hard time understanding where to position itself. Is CBD you know, you look at it, look at something like um, examples are always sort of the, the easiest way to drive this point across, but look at something like a tincture, a 1200 milligram tincture of CBD that you'll find in a dietary supplement. That's a fairly common product that's out there. That tincture itself will contain about 30 milligrams of THC and 30 milligrams of THC is sufficiently high to be intoxicated, but nobody's going to go out and buy a CBD tincture for hundred dollars in order to down 1200 milligrams of CBD in order to get that 30 milligrams of THC when they could go buy a gram either in an adult food store, adult, uh, adult uh, store or on the illicit market. But, but as a regulator, you still have to think about that. So, you know, so that, yeah, that, that it has been fascinating, Jason, it's been really, really interesting, but you know, to bring it full circle to what Kelly said about what, what canopy does, right shooting for best in class, shooting for meeting those GMP requirements, the labeling, the proper testing, that makes our life a lot easier. So that's what's great about working with Canopy and you know, getting feedback from them is they know that that's, that's what will put them ahead of the pack. And for us, we know that they're looking to be compliant actors in the space. And so we can get from them feedback on what's reasonable, what's doable, because we're all kind of feeling our way around here, trying to understand what the road, uh, what, you know, what the road, uh, the road signs should be on, on this new, uh, on this, uh, on this miraculous compound, frankly. And then I'm guessing at the end of the day that that higher standard, if you will, will also, it should make enforcement a lot easier. I mean, at the end of the day, regulations are, are, are one thing, but enforcing them is another, right? So trying to, to get this market, make sure that, again, protecting the consumer, I think that has to be a large part of it as well. It, it really is. On that note, really quickly, I mean, dietary supplements, the FDA doesn't love dietary supplements. It's a framework that's difficult. It's third party certified. So they don't control those audits. They don't go in and inspect and people are, you know, developing their own hazard plans to make sure there are no contaminants. It's not the, the level of hands-on regulatory oversight that the FDA would want, but you know, it's a compromise with the, with the supplements industry that dates back to the Shea over the eighties. But now you have a CBD product that, that, you know, has the, the properties you've just described, Jason, and they're, you know, they're being asked to put it in a regulatory framework that they don't, already don't feel comfortable with so it's a it's a challenging uh it's a challenging process but companies like canopy and others that are doing the science are really going to help this along because if we can start to you know knock out some of the some of the real concerns we can we can start to uh fit it into existing regulatory frameworks so I, last question i know we need to turn it back over to joe for for some q a uh, and, and maybe we'll end this with you kelly Next generation products, what do we expect to see coming to the market in, you know, next year, 2021? What's it going to look like? So from Canopy's perspective, um, we're really excited about all the form factors. Um, it is a miraculous compound and it, and it helps consumers in lots of ways. So we, we explore, you know, every, every way that a consumer might 
like the product in ways that they don't even know that they might like the product. We have our first in frame, our This Works products. I expect the topical uh, platform to expand even more. Um, there's a lot of cosmetic applications for CBD that um, I think are just great. The vapes and the pre-rolls are, are, are also coming to market. Um, just more broadly, I think consumers are, are starting to uh, recognize the pre-roll as um, something they enjoy. It doesn't give you the, the same euphoric as, a, as smoking a THC pre-roll. Um, it's just a very quick way to get your body to relax very quickly. I mean, I'm talking anecdotally at this point um, as a sampler of our own test products. Um, so I, I think that it's really the sky's the limits for what kind of what kind of form factors we're going to see on the market. Canopy does focus on what kind of form factors are going to have the best effects for the consumer. So I, I don't, you know, think that we're ever going to have like a CBD shampoo um, and going to claim that it does anything for your body. There's, there's, there has to be a line in the sand and we need to distinguish, um, you know, the snake oil from actual effective products that will deliver CBD in an effective way. So what, we will continue to, to evaluate and um, yeah, I think as the regulations roll out, we'll be able to see less and less of the, the snake oil on the market. Uh, that'd be great. And I think uh, uh, welcome for the industry in, in, in total. So Joe, what, what do we have? We should probably move it over to q and I think we've run over a little bit, but um, what do you have that we can get in front of the appropriate people? I was going to say, that's fine for me. I was learning a ton as well. So I, I you know we had uh, ETFMG obviously at SALT 2019 curating some of our conversations. So just having these ongoing sessions is, is really informative and welcome for the industry. So we had uh, a question from, from a viewer from California. So he was talking about, about farming and how farms might negatively affect the neighbors, uh, the neighborhood um, without the appropriate regulations. How is, you know, in building an industry and building these regulations in its piecemeal nature right now, how is that being enacted? How are those sorts of businesses or that part of the supply chain being regulated? Yeah, I think, Kelly, and actually you probably both speak to that. Kelly, maybe you're in California. Maybe you should kick off. Yeah, um, I'll say that like, I'll echo what I said earlier, that the California Department of Agriculture did a great job. I mean, California is just a great ag state anyway. And so the way that California is zoned is that um, it, you shouldn't be next to any sort of a hemp grow if you didn't know that you were next to a very agricultural area. Like our, we're, we have our state zoned so that most of the, the hemp cultivation is happening in areas that are predominantly ag, they're either industrially zoned or agriculturally zoned. And so we didn't see as a company that grew, I think we had 1500 acres in California that first growing season, um, much in the way of nuisance complaints or we were never close to actual neighborhoods. I think that changes um, county by county. Uh, Ventura County was certainly a beautiful place to grow hemp because it's warm. Um, we had great crops there. Uh, that was closer to cities than I had otherwise seen. Um, I can speak in, for our cannabis facilities in Canada. Um, the the nuisance around smell is a, a huge issue in Canada, um, and there's a lot of technologies that are we put in place to mitigate just smell, uh, just generally. Um, so, if if we continued to cultivate in the U.S., we would we would apply those those same technologies. 
but I think the regulators have done a great job in keeping keeping the you know in the ag areas separate from the cities. Yeah, I mean, for the most part, that's right. There's a long history of uh, of, of the intersectionality of uh, agriculturally zoned districts and and urban centers, and there are other types of farms that emit smells and noises that folks don't want to be around. So, for the most part, our our legislation just categorized hemp as another crop. And so long as you're in an ag district, then the, the town can't prohibit you from growing hemp. It's like any other crop. Uh, we have had a number of complaints on smell, um, you know, uh, but that might not be the biggest challenge. The biggest challenge is probably cross-pollination and the fear that folks that are growing field crops or even adult use uh, indoor grows. Uh, and that, that's more challenging, you know, creating a heat map and trying to tell people you can grow in this area, but not in this area. Is, is something we, we're just gonna need to take a day at a time. But, um, but yeah, the smell issue, we just, we borrowed uh, from prior crops and if you're an ag district, you're good to go. So I have two, I guess, larger questions that we'll try to cram in real quick. So people always compare, or most of the time compare cannabis with alcohol and say, you know, I should be able to just go to a store, pick it off the shelf, take it with me. Is that a fair comparison for on, on the consumer end with, as, as we spoke about today, cannabis touching so many possible endpoints where alcohol is really, you know, it has a finite number of uses? There's, there's, the, there's the consumer, there's the, I think the retailer angle that Kelly can speak to, the, the, the industry yeah. angle for sure, which she'll know a lot more about. But from a regulatory standpoint, there's some overlap. It's a substance that can be used for, as an intoxicant, and there are all sorts of regulatory questions like driving under the influence, taking it while you're pregnant, uh, mine, you know, age, all these considerations are very similar to alcohol, the licensing and the, all that's very, very similar. But I think as we've been saying, what's unique is that people are taking it as a medicine, you know, four out of five Americans are saying they're taking uh, cannabinoids generally as for medicinal reasons, be it anti-stress. And, you know, you could say the same thing about alcohol. Somebody has a drink at the end of the day to de-stress, but I think there are definitely over, uh, there are overlaps. There's a lot to learn from the alcohol system uh, and framework, but then you're just going to have to innovate with a lot of other regulatory uh, onion peels to, to fully uh, capture all the complexities of the plant. Yeah, that's a, that's a great point um, on the regulation side. Canopy as a company has have been advocating for a regulatory model for federal legalization that does model very much after alcohol because there are so many similarities. Um, what's dissimilar though is that, you know, alcohol came out of prohibition federally and at the state level at the same time. So it was really a blank slate. We're here, we're going to come out of prohibition um, where we have, you know, 32 plus states already with robust regulatory frameworks. And so when you're, you're navigating that as a company and you're, you're thinking all, all the way down the supply chain where a customer wants to walk into a, a liquor store and get also get cannabis, um, I there are a lot of complexities there. I mean, cannabis is regulated at the state level. I will always say that is appropriate because only those states know what their communities need and they know what their constituents voted for if it was on the ballot and how they wanted it controlled and regulated. And so I think we're a long way off from that the scenario where cannabis is just like any other um, medicine or, or vice, depending on which which side of the fence you're on and what, what your use is. Um, 
but I also don't think that there's a huge barrier, even as a, even as a, from a commercial side to the dispensary, to the dispensary model, if it's done well, I'm sitting in San Francisco and me walking into a dispensary to get any product, any beautiful product that I want is just as easy as going to a beautiful wine shop. Um, but without, with, but with more controls, you know, I couldn't go into a dispensary and shoplift, for example, because everything is behind a counter. I have to go through a bud tender. I mean, and I, I don't, I don't find that 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 experience takes away from the consumer experience, and there are ways to enhance it. Um, and so we'll just have to let our communities decide um, how how cannabis could be maybe put more into you know mainstream retail when it's appropriate. Gotcha. I like the term bud tender. That's, that's awesome. Um, so last question, obviously an easy question is, is the election. Um, I'll posit this to whomever can, can answer and we're going to have more conversation around the election and what the possible results are later in the talks. We don't need to dive too deep, but we're now two months out from election day. Um, what are these next, I guess, 10-ish weeks going to, to mean for cannabis on, on the federal level? Are people looking at both candidates in, in different ways or, you know, is someone going to come out more, you know, in favor, more uh, anti, just that sort of 40,000 foot overview of the next two months? I think that's me, right, Axel? I don't think he could say anything. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's also a great intro, uh, Joe, to, uh, you know, tune back in for episode two in two weeks. Exactly. And, and, that's right. Congress and cannabis episode. But yeah, Kelly, why don't you handle that one? Okay. Well, it's it's no secret. It is public that um, that the House intends to move the MORE Act in September, the week of the 21st. And so that is quite significant as an election issue because Kamala Harris is co-sponsor of the MORE Act. And so um, that will be create great momentum um, going into the election cycle. I think just for cannabis generally, I, I would anticipate that the House passes that bill. What happens in the Senate um, is you know, TBD, not expecting great things. Um, but we'll give the industry real momentum going into 2021, um, especially if the Senate changes and the White House changes. Um, so very exciting time for the cannabis industry. It will be a historic vote. It, it's it's historic that the that the act the bill is going to move at all. So it's very exciting. Fantastic. Well, with that, thank you for the extra time, everyone. Jason, Kelly, and Axel um, want to. Thank also ETFMG, Fourth World Advisory, and Canopy for the support of this series. We're really looking forward to seeing what um, is going to be spoken about over the next four episodes. Um, all of the episodes are now available to be registered for on salt.org backslash talks backslash VOC for Voice of Cannabis. Um, and we'll be releasing who is going to be speaking on each of those in, in the coming days and weeks. But we have some that are going to be timed with the presidential debates and such that will have more of a political angle to them as well as a financial services angles.